Hello and welcome to the Light from Light podcast. Uh, you're here with me, Brother Thomas Therese, and today's episode is very special because we're joined by a man whose good humour is only outmatched by his charity. Uh, <laughs> we're joined by uh, my brother, uh, Father Richard Answorth, who's based at our priory in Leicester. Um, and today we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, St. Paul's letter to the Galatians. So thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit of, about yourself. Oh, gosh, what would you like to know? Well, I am, uh, as we were just discussing before we started recording, I'm going to be 50 in August, which is very worrying. Uh, being a Dominican, oh, gosh, now more than half my life. Um, so being a priest for 21 years. Um, spent most of those in Oxford uh, teaching scripture, uh, including teaching you, of course. Yes. <laughs> uh, but also uh, looking after the the province's money for eight and a half years, which was super fun. Uh, but now I'm in Leicester. I've got a lot fewer responsibilities and I'm having a lovely time. Oh, marvellous. So when was it you first got interested in the New Testament in an academic sense? Well, when I was a novice, um, Father Simon, as he then wasn't, Brother Simon, one of my fellow novices, um, lent me a copy of a book, which actually I think I still have on my shelves somewhere, which is called The Interpretation of the New Testament, 19-something to 19-something. <laughs> um, and it's uh, it's a second edition of a book originally written by an Anglican bishop called Stephen Neal. And the mm. second edition was revised by another Anglican bishop, Tom Wright, uh, who is N.T. Wright, a well-known biblical scholar. Mm. And it's a big, thick book. And I remember taking it home with me when I went to visit my parents for a few days in the summer. And I found it unputdownable. And that's weird because <laughs> biblical scholarship is rarely on put down. Um, but I loved it. And he said to me when I came back and I said, oh, I loved it. And he said, yeah, I thought you should be. Is this Simon Gain? Yeah. Yeah. He said, I thought you should you should be a New Testament person. And, and so he basically decided from when I was a novice that I was going to be a New Testament person. And luckily, I do love it. I think partly I love it because the New Testament's in Greek. Yeah. And I love Greek. I love teaching Greek. I love reading Greek. I love reading about Greek, how it works and all that kind of thing. And so I do try always when I'm going to be preaching to read the readings, at least the, the, the gospel and the New Testament readings in Greek so that I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, you can really bring out the contours of the text and the ambiguities and things. Exactly. And it doesn't yeah. mean necessarily that you're standing there giving a lecture to the no. congregation mm. on the Greek text. It just means that, uh, well, as you say, you're more familiar with it. You feel like you've mm. really read it. Uh, and so I think you get a sort of trickle down effect, if you like, with biblical scholarship. It doesn't mean you you lecture. It just mm. means that, that you're your preaching is is well informed yeah i i mean your preaching is always very interesting i've got to say being on the receiving end of it which is very nice uh, i and i was over the summer i was where was i uh somewhere in the southwest and you'd been given a uh you you were giving a retreat to some priests from was it two dioceses or yeah, it was the diocese of um, Clifton? Oh, yes, Clifton. Yeah. That's right. It is the Diocese of Clifton. 
I, I did give them a retreat. Oh, more than a year ago now. But I'm, I'm very flattered that they remembered me. Oh, they did. They really did. And in fact, I yeah. had two bishops at my retreat. Gosh. The, the present Bishop of Clifton, uh, Declan Lang, and the former Bishop of Portsmouth was also there. So that was that was very flattering. Oh, very good. Well, they remembered you very well. It was Father Frank. Oh, I can't remember his surname now. Um, but he's he's based down in the southwest and mm-hmm. he remembered very fondly uh no it was, it was it was good yeah they're very good and i'm sure that i mean if our listeners haven't uh, uh heard you preach before uh you'll be able to go and read some of the stuff on torch yes um and i'm sure there'll be some things on youtube where well our masses are live streamed on youtube from here Uh, every day so if you search for holy cross leicester on youtube you'll find them um and um even my mother uh, who is not uh, catholic um even she sometimes watches my sermons (laughs) marvelous well let's crack on with talking about galatians maybe the first thing that i should recommend to the listeners is actually to go and read galatians um it's only six chapters so it won't take you all day there are 2230 words so you can probably do it in 15 to 20 minutes is that greek words or english words english words (laughs) in the nrsv translation uh, 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 especially but what is what is galatians about what's what's going on in galatians ah well now that is uh two different questions yeah um i'm going to ask answer the second one first i think if i may what's going on it appears is that there are some christians in galatia and we'll set aside the question of where exactly that is because even that is controversial <laughs> it is. The, there are some christians in galatia who are being persuaded by other christians in galatia that they should get themselves circumcised mm. And St. Paul is very cross about that. Um, He tells them that uh, the people who are trying to persuade them to get circumcised are only doing so because they're afraid of being persecuted by some other people who we don't know who they are. um, And that they shouldn't, you know, this is cowardice, basically. Mm. And crucially, that if you allow yourself to be circumcised, you're giving the impression that circumcision matters. Mm. And if you're giving the impression that circumcision matters, you are acting as though we still live in the times of the old covenant and not in the time of the new covenant in Christ. And therefore, you are emptying the cross of its significance. Mm. And the answer to your first question, what is Galatians about, is the significance of Christ's crucifixion. What has he achieved? What does it mean Mm. that Christ has been crucified? Oh, remarkable, yeah. Maybe we should say something about um, Paul's Paul's vocation, Uh, because Paul is very sort of keen to stress uh, that he's been called by Jesus Christ, that his uh, vocation doesn't come from any human authority, that he doesn't, he hasn't conferred with any human authority. Like, what what might this mean in terms, and that his gospel is, is true and he's not seeking human approval, and it's not from a human source. What what does this mean then in relation to the, the other apostles, like Peter and James and things? Well, 
And St. Paul, as you say, is very insistent that he doesn't depend on any human authority. Um, and in particular, two things. Firstly, that he did not receive the gospel from any other human being. Mm. Um, he is not a, an, uh, a subject of the preaching of the Jerusalem apostles. He met Jesus, the risen Christ. And if you like, you know, he, he knew the gospel knew that the gospel was true and seemingly um, intuited the whole content of the Christian faith from his encounter with the risen Christ. I guess we would have to say it's, it's the gift of the Holy Spirit that he received at that moment um, has taught him everything, just as, of course, Christ promised mm. that the paraclete would teach everything to the apostles. Mm. So at that moment, St. Paul went from being a persecutor of the faith to being an apostle of the faith. Mm. That's the first thing, is that he received the gospel, as it were, direct. The second thing he insists on is that he is not under the authority of the apostles in Jerusalem. Though he does also insist that, that he entirely agrees with them about everything. I guess the question really is, why is he in so, so insistent on this when he's writing this letter to the Galatians? And some people have speculated that it's because the people that he has a problem with, although precisely which set of people he has a problem with, it's not clear, the people that he has a problem with are saying that what St Paul asserts is not true. Mm. I think, I mean, this is known as, as mirror reading. You essentially say, well, what do Paul's opponents, quote unquote, what do they say? Well, they must say whatever St Paul says isn't true. Right. But in fact, if you take that sort of reading strategy to the extreme, you end up with people believing something that, that really makes no sense. <laughs> because Paul simultaneously says um, he agrees with all of the apostles in Jerusalem about everything and that he doesn't depend on their authority. Yeah. If his opponents really believed the opposite of both of those things, then they would have to be asserting that St. Paul is completely dependent upon the Jerusalem apostles, but disagrees with them. Yeah. Well, I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So I read it just as St. Paul is so angry and so insistent that the Galatian Christians must do as he says, that his principal goal, first of all, is to assert his authority mm. just so that they'll yeah. listen to what he says. I don't think it proves that anybody is actually questioning his authority. Yeah. Not explicitly, but he takes it that if people are doing something that he's told them that they needn't and in fact shouldn't do, that that is an attack yeah. on his authority.
And then he has a divine mandate. I mean, he clearly says, you know, I've been called from before I, I mean, before I was born, yes. which sort of yes. echoes Jeremiah and the great prophets. Presumably uh, deliberately. Yeah, yes, yeah, indeed, I, I, absolutely. And it is quite striking as well that he talks uh, himself about his own uh, persecuting of uh, of Christians and of the disciples. So clearly he wouldn't accept their testimony even when he would have heard it as he was persecuting him. For example, we read in, in Acts of the Apostles when he's when he's stoning stoning Stephen or overseeing the stoning of Stephen. Um, I mean, he will have heard Christians preach, which is what provokes him to such great anger. Yeah. And only hearing it from God himself then convinces him. Uh, so it's not, yeah, not on the on the... Well, in fact, I would say it's specifically the fact that he has seen the risen Christ. Mm. It's the fact of the resurrection, which for St. Paul is now a, a straightforward fact. He knows it's true. Because he's seen it. Because he's seen the risen Christ. If Christ has, in fact, been raised from the dead, well, that is, as it were, the premise upon which... All of Paul's preaching is based. Christ has, in fact, been raised. And therefore, we are in the period of the new covenant or perhaps better. And in fact, to quote Tom Wright, who I mentioned earlier, we are in the period of the climax of the covenant, the period of the fulfillment of God's promises. Yeah. To, to, to go back to something uh, where, you know, when Paul sort of says, you know, I didn't confer with the people who were apostles before me in Jerusalem um, uh, before he sort of goes out on this sort of preaching, preaching what he's seen. Um, does that mean that he, I mean, he, does he does he ever go to Jerusalem to, to confer with the with the apostles? He does. And does he, he seek their approval at all? It, well, it's not clear why he went to Jerusalem, according to his own writing according mm -hmm. to the letter to the Galatians. In fact, in the Acts of the Apostles, what you see is several returns to Jerusalem. Jerusalem mm -hmm. remains in the Acts of the Apostles, as it were, the beating heart of the church. And you can see, I this is how I picture it, St. Paul's um, preaching missions as being like the, the pumping of blood out from the heart as it were, into the body. And then, of course, it returns. And so it's like this sort of rhythmic motion outwards and inwards. Exodus and Reditus, <laughs> as Thomas Aquinas might say. It, we don't really get the same thing in the letter to the Galatians. Um, it's almost as if he just popped to Jerusalem for a chat with mm. the apostles, um, whom he'd never previously met and he he's quite clear that you know even when he was there uh, the first time he went he didn't meet all of them yeah he, he said he went to visit peter yeah so it sounds like he deliberately went to see see peter right. which is quite interesting right. why deliberately going and seeking out just peter when there are others i thought that was quite quite strange and he said i didn't see anybody else except james yes yeah yeah um so it does appear that uh, peter and james brackets which james close brackets we're not quite sure um but it does seem that that peter and james were like the the linchpins of mm. the whole operation in jerusalem and, and st paul acknowledges that the the meeting the second meeting that he has when he goes to jerusalem seems to be the same as the meeting that's described in acts 15 
which is known as the Council of Jerusalem, when questions about the requirements or not for Gentile converts to Christianity to obey um, certain aspects of the law were discussed. Do Gentiles need to observe the rules of kosher? Mm. And, of course, do Gentiles need to be circumcised? Mm -hmm. And the answer to both of those questions, which everyone agrees with, is no, they mm. don't. A little bit later on then in Galatians, St. Paul talks about a time when St. Peter uh, effectively broke that rule. He, he had been used to ignoring rules about eating um, <laughs> because they didn't apply anymore. They were no yeah. longer relevant. Um, and then for some reason, he suddenly withdrew from eating with Gentiles. And St. Paul, according to his own account, stands up to him and says, you are being a hypocrite. You yeah. know you don't have to do this. So why are you doing yeah. it? It's, and it's exactly that same kind of hypocrisy that he's trying to oppose now in Galatia, not in regards to kosher food, but in regard to circumcision. Mm -hmm. he's, he thinks that the people who are trying to persuade some of the presumably, well, obviously, Gentile Christians, trying to persuade them to get circumcised, those persuaders are hypocrites because they know full well that it's not necessary. Mm. And in fact, as he says at the end of his letter, they themselves don't obey the law. They just want to make a good showing in the flesh, yeah. as he puts it. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I, I should probably say, if you do go and read Galatians, which of course we would heartily and thoroughly recommend, when you see Cephas uh, mentioned, that's the, the, the name for Peter. He's talking about Peter there. Uh, when he's talking about Cephas. So if you sort of read it and you just see Cephas everywhere and you're like, where's where's Peter? I mean, why are they talking about Peter? That's where Peter is. Uh, <laughs> because because Cephas is the Greek version of Kepha, which is the Aramaic word for rock. And mm. Petros, of course, is a, as it were, the masculinized version of the Greek word for rock, which is yeah. Petra, as in petroleum. Oh, yeah. It's cognate with <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean, there, there are these two these two meetings with the apostles that you see in in Galatians. Uh, the second one comes, he says, fourteen years later, uh, in a private meeting, and he says that the gospel was laid before the apostles to make to make sure he hadn't run in vain. Um, so what what's going on there? Does that does that seem like he's sort of seeking some sort of approval or just making sure that he, that he wasn't going wrong i think I mean, he would definitely deny that he was seeking their approval mm. i think it's if you were to ask him and one can only speculate that he would say it was more about wanting to be sure that it was clear mm. to everyone mm -hmm. that his gospel and the gospel of the jerusalem apostles was one and the same gospel mm. Um, which, of course, it did turn out to be, yeah. um, unless you believe one of the many conspiracy theories going around whereby the letter to the Galatians and or the Acts of the Apostles is engaged in some big cover-up. Hmm. Oh, yes. I've never had this. Oh, oh yes. Gosh. Well, you clearly weren't paying sufficient attention when I lectured you on this. Um, <laughs> it was a couple of years ago. <laughs> I know, I know. There's, there is, for example... 
there is this idea which is known in the history of scholarship as the Tübingen hypothesis, oh, yeah. which is essentially that the uh, Christians in Jerusalem, what is some of the Christians in Jerusalem and perhaps elsewhere, um, were what are called Judaizers. That is to say, not only did they continue to observe Jewish practices, I mean, that is to say, the distinctive practices that set the Jewish people apart from others, but that they thought other Christians ought to do the same, that, that to become a Christian, as it were, you first had to become a Jew. Um, and that those Judaizing Christians were opposed to the Pauline Christians, um, Paul and those who agreed with him. So you've basically got two wings of Christianity and that um, the, uh, if well, put it like this, um, you can think of it as a sort of Hegelian dialectic. I'm sure all your listeners know about Hegelian dialectics. <laughs> um, so that if you like Pauline Christianity is the thesis and this Judaizing Christianity is the antithesis and that when they come together, they create a new synthesis or to give it another word compromise and that that compromise was sort of brokered by Peter and it became quote unquote early Catholicism mm. and for the people who sort of follow this thesis early Catholicism is basically where it all started to go wrong right Paul is an authentic Protestant Christian, <laughs> Protestant before the, of course, before the word was, was ever coined, but that Protestantism is precisely about getting back to this authentic Pauline Christianity, which was compromised by this deal um, with the, the Judaizing Christians. But this sort of whole thing was covered up in the, uh, in the Acts of the Apostles. So it's basically some kind of a conspiracy theory. Mm. I do, just to make this perfectly clear, lest I have not, it is stuff and nonsense of the first water. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I mean, it's probably important, you know, to note that in Galatians itself, I mean, Paul makes it quite clear that there's no um, disparity between what he's preaching and what the other apostles uh, preaching that actually they agree on what the gospel is and this is precisely why he gets annoyed with peter isn't it because he sort of says because he's a hypocrite yeah because he says you know what's true you preach what is true you teach what is true and then you do this so who who then might these certain people from james be who who paul talked about do we know anything about them at all we don't is that no um, building castles on clouds really is because i mean all you have is that one phrase some people from james came to Antioch, where Peter was at the time. And when those people from James came, that occasioned the withdrawal of Peter in, in hypocrisy uh, from eating with Gentiles. Now, people have, as you put it, built castles in the air on all of this and said, well, those people from James must be the same people who are now persecuting the Christians in Galatia mm. and therefore they must be Judaizing Christians mm. and also you get this this um, 
expression that is translated even in good translations like the RSV as the circumcision party. Yeah. And so, again, that implies that there is this, well, party, this faction of people who are pro-circumcision. Mm. I think, actually, this is to confuse two different groups of people. The people from James are Christians. Christians don't persecute other Christians. There's no suggestion anywhere that that happened. I mean, in more modern times, of course, it's happened, but not in the in the primitive, the, the, the apostolic church. It's as we see uh, in the Acts of the Apostles and in the beginning of the letter to the Galatians, it's people like Saul who persecute mm. Christians, i.e. non-Christian Jews who find Christianity objectionable. The people from James can't then be, I don't think, those persecutors. I do think those of the circumcision which is the literal translation of that expression, they are persecutors. But those of the circumcision, tus ectes peritomes, are simply Jews. Mm. So I think, to answer a question that was implied by one of your earlier remarks, the reason that Paul talks at such length in the beginning of the letter to the Galatians about his own previous career as a persecutor of Christians, is because he wants to say such people, people like I was, are still around mm. and they are threatening to persecute. But you have to distinguish between the persecutors and the persecutees. Mm. Mm -hmm. And the third group is the people that the persecutees are trying to persuade to get circumcised. So you've got the bad guys, the hypocrites, and the victims. Mm. Three different groups of people. And when you read Galatians, you really need to be clear in your mind which group of people Paul is either talking to or talking about at any point in the letter. It's not always obvious, which is why you have to read it carefully. Yeah. I mean, the, the issue to do with circumcision touches on... Uh, I mean, why is this something that's so uh you know nifas ass you know so so objectionable to paul i mean it impinges on his understanding of the law doesn't it so and the law is something that comes up a lot in galatians so how does paul see the law what's he talking about when he talks about the law what's going on with that well what a great question and um not an easy one to answer sometimes when St. paul is talking about the law what he means is the bible mm. it's quite normal for uh, a Greek-speaking Jew in the time of Christ to refer to what you or I would think of as the Old Testament as uh, honomos, the law, uh, i.e. that whole collection of books, which, which, well, not books in fact, but scrolls, that later becomes what we call the Old Testament. Sometimes when Paul's talking about the law, and this is especially true in Romans, he's talking about the law almost as if it was some kind of personified force, like he talks about the law and sin and death, mm. almost like the, the sort of the, the, the three evil demons almost. <laughs> and now Paul, of course, doesn't think that the law is evil, but he does think that the law is closely associated with sin and death, because what the law does is manifest 
and if you like ratify the guilt of sinners if you sin that's bad if it's clear that you've sinned because you've broken the law and the law's now been written down and everybody knows what it is then it's clear that you've sinned and therefore well you've got no excuse mm. though in fact paul does say elsewhere in the letter to the romans that people who don't have the law i.e the gentiles they've got no excuse either um, because all you have to do is look at the world and you can see that it must be created and once you've seen that it must be created well you can see there must be a creator and you ought to do his will and that will is perfectly clear because we've all got a conscience mm. to go back to your question what St Paul sometimes means by the law is those specifically if you like ritual observances e.g circumcision um, the keeping of kosher and um, the observance of the Sabbath, those would be, I suppose, the three big ones. Ritual observances which set Jewish people apart from the Gentiles. And in particular, when he uses the expression works of the law, that seems to be what he's talking about. He's not talking about things like not murdering people or not right. committing adultery. Mm. Of course, you should continue to not murder people and not commit adultery. That pretty much goes without saying. But what you mustn't continue to do is to observe those things which mark out the distinction between the people of the covenant and the Gentiles, because we are now in that period where the Gentiles are being welcomed into the covenant. Mm. And that is what the fulfillment of the covenant is. The covenant with the people of Israel never existed for its own sake, nor simply for the sake of the people of Israel. It existed so that Israel would be a light for the nations. Mm. Now, that light has shone because it turns out that that light shining in a dark place is Christ crucified. And as he says in the Gospel of St. John himself, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. That is now happening. And therefore, to continue to observe those distinctions is to put up barriers to the fulfillment of God's promises. Mm. There's a lot there of what you said where, where I can see some overlaps with um, Corinthians and things. I mean, you know, Christ being the light of the world and we being the the the, the uh, body of Christ uh, and, and things like that. So we too acting like Christ and sort of shining out and radiating out his love and his light and things. Also, uh, on um, how is it then that one is incorporated uh uh, or grafted onto Christ and incorporated into the into the body of Christ. This happens in a sort of ritualistic way, doesn't it, for Paul in 1 Corinthians? He talks about baptism and yes. the Eucharist and the importance of them. So it's not that Paul is completely against any sort of ritual at all, because oh, no, as you said course. before about Paul sometimes being presented as this sort of uh protestant before proto-protestant maybe yes um you know and so therefore he must be against uh ritual and any sort anything sort of like that um absolutely but of course you're right i mean he talks in particular about those two great sacraments baptism and the eucharist and they are absolutely crucial for saint paul i think the difference between 
those rituals and the rituals of Judaism is that the rituals of the what we would call the new law, um, that is to say the sacraments, the Christian liturgy more broadly, is driven by the spirit. He constantly, especially in Galatians, makes this distinction between the spirit and the flesh. Mm. For St Paul, flesh always has that negative connotation of not just bodiliness, which he's very positive about, but the inevitable sinfulness and mortality that accompanies our bodiliness in this present life. Things like, you know, concupiscence and yeah. so on. But he points out that the observances of the Jewish law, those ritual observances we are speaking about, are works of the flesh, just as things like, you know, drunkenness and debauchery and orgy and orgies and all that kind of thing are works of the flesh. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, having your child circumcised or allowing yourself to be circumcised is as bad as going to orgies and murdering people, but they are all actually on the same side of that fundamental divide between flesh and spirit. Whereas the baptism the Eucharist, those are ways in which the Spirit is normally communicated to the people of God. Mm. I, I, I suppose this is why you see in some of the early church, the early church fathers, there's this relationship they see between baptism and circumcision, about how baptism is like a new flood, baptism is like a, a new circumcision, a circumcision of the heart and things like this. Um, yeah, no, very interesting. Thanks. Yes, and of course that is the fulfilment of Jeremiah, who we've mm -hmm. already spoken about, it's clear, I think, that St. Paul sees himself as a sort of new Jeremiah in some ways. Um, he's like a persecuted prophet. Um, but Jeremiah speaks of a new covenant, and in the new covenant, it will be a circumcision of the heart and not of the flesh. Mm. Again, St. Paul is making the claim that this promise has now been fulfilled in Christ. And to act as though the circumcision of the flesh is still a thing is effectively to try to turn the clock back. And therefore, it's defying the will of God mm. who has brought all things to fulfillment in Christ. He goes so far as to say it, you nullify the, the cross of Christ yes. in Galatians. Yes, exactly. And the, the, that relationship between the law and uh, the flesh and the works of the flesh and things, that's brought out in Galatians. And he contrasts uh, that with the fruits of the, of the spirit. Exactly. He? But it is worth saying. To go back to your earlier question, there are positive aspects of the law. He doesn't explicitly say this in Galatians, though it's it's implied throughout. But he does say it explicitly in Romans, I think, chapter three, mm. when he says, you know, the Jews still have a great advantage because they have the law. In other words, they have the scriptures mm -hmm. and the scriptures reveal God's promises that are now being fulfilled. And in particular, the scriptures give us types. Um, you spoke about, for example, how circumcision and baptism are related. They're related as the type to the reality. Yes. Or the flood and baptism, type to reality, language explicitly used by St. Peter. Mm -hmm. um, 
So to have the scriptures is to be able to find not just the promises of God, but also the patterns which he is now fulfilling as he is true to his promises. Um, so, for example, in Galatians, you've got all this very peculiar seeming stuff about Sarah and Hagar, which uh, I know that your listeners will probably find extremely puzzling if they've never looked at it before. And it's not the kind of thing that you very often hear sermons about. But essentially, he's saying just as in the Bible, there is this contrast between Sarah and Hagar. So now we have to make a contrast between the old and the new, between the promise and the fulfilment, mm. between the earthly and the heavenly, between the fleshly and the spiritual. Mm. Paul, Paul talks in Romans, doesn't he, about how the, the calling and the gifts of God are, are irrevocable. Yes. Um, so what then does how then does that fit into what we were just saying? Um, well, the you have to read the Old Testament as the statement of God's promises and God does not go back on his word mm. and so even though we we might be unfaithful God is always faithful, faithful because yes exactly exactly <laughs> he cannot deny his own self as it says in another place and so first of all we read the old testament as the statement of God's promises secondly we read the old testament as establishing the pattern of God's actions. Um, so, for example, um, you can read the Exodus as establishing a pattern whereby God saves his people from slavery, from bondage, um, through the passing through water. Mm. That is, it turns out, a type of baptism. Mm. Ultimately, God was going to save all of humanity, that is his plan, to save all of humanity from the bondage not of slavery in Egypt, but of slavery to sin and death through the waters of baptism mm. in which we're reborn. And this is how we become children, this is how we become children of God, and as Paul says in Galatians, if children then as. Uh, exactly. And then we, we're under freedom, we're under the freedom exactly of grace. Exactly so. And it's in that context that he speaks about the law in Galatians as a the, the Greek word is paedagogos, um, from which we get the English word pedagogue. But really, a paedagogos is is a it's well, it's a slave who takes your children to school, or maybe actually educates your children when they're young. Um, so I, the way I sort of think of it is like the law is like a nanny. It's like when you're a child, you need to be given very clear guidelines and you're not necessarily told why you're just told do this behave like this and there are good reasons but you're not told those reasons until you're old enough to understand them st paul's point in galatians is that in christ we have now become as you say adults we've become free adult human beings and clinging on to the apron strings of the law is the behavior of a child mm, mm. there's something else maybe just to finish on the sort of the the moral exhortations that that we see in in um in galatians there's one line that i remember where um peter's or paul says that 
Peter sort of wanted to impress upon him uh, the care for the poor. Yes. Uh, and he said, well, you know, I was I was very concerned with this already myself. So I was very pleased to hear that that Peter was <laughs> was exhorting me to care for the poor. I, I thought that was, that was very beautiful. But he also says something very interesting about how we how we treat people who uh, who transgress the law or so because he talks about, you know, works of the flesh and how these are contrary to the to the, the, the gifts and the and, and the works of the of the spirit. Um, and um, we don't do these things. And that that impinges on things that he says in in Romans as well. You know, mm-hmm. does this mean then that we we are free to sin, you know, by no means? Um, uh, but then he has a very interesting thing in, in Galatians 6 where he says, I'll just I'll just read a little quote from it my friends if anyone is detected in a transgression you who have received the spirit should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness take care that you yourselves are not tempted bear one another's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of christ for if those who are nothing think they are something they deceive themselves again i think i think this is a really really beautiful thing where you actually see a lot of Paul's own personality coming out because very often when people think of Paul I think people remember you know some of the harsh things that you that you can hear from Paul but actually here we're seeing actually a gentle side to Paul and saying yes no we're firm on our moral exhortations but actually when people transgress them we should be kind and compassionate with them because we too are also sinners Absolutely. I see a little parallel here with maybe Romans 2 where at the end of Romans 1 where he goes on and sort of says you know um, you know all these you know do you not know that you know the drunkard and the this and the that and the other um, won't inherit the the kingdom of God all these things are, are all awful and terrible and then a lot of people will sort of finish there and say oh gosh that's that's harsh isn't it and then it's just such a shame because if they'd have just move on to Romans 2 and then the rest of Romans yes <laughs> well, I think two things to be said about that firstly when you read St. Paul's letters, and as you say, when you read them all rather than just, you know, selected extracts. Yeah. One thing that comes across over and over again is his love for the people he's writing to. Yeah. Even the Galatians, and he is really cross with them and quite rude to them. He calls them morons <laughs> um, and empty headed and says they've been bewitched. Ooh. But... It's very, very clear, even in Galatians, that he loves them and is concerned for them. And that's it's what just he, heartbreak, he's really, doing, isn't it? Exactly yeah. so. And he talks about how, you know, they would have torn their eyes out and given them to him. Mm. That's how much they love him. And he loves them back. It's even clearer in the letters where he's you know, not quite so angry. For example, in, in, in 1 Thessalonians and in, in Philippians, it's, it's really quite sweet. I think the other thing is... Paul is very, very conscious of the mercy of God. Yeah. Because going back to what we spoke about earlier, he persecuted the church and yet Christ revealed himself to Paul and chose him to be an apostle. Mm. And he knows that this is entirely God's doing and not his own. At one point he says, I think in Galatians, he says, it's not me that lives. It's Christ that lives in me. And he sees this entirely as a work of the mercy of God. 
And if God has been merciful, how dare we be anything else? Yeah. I mean, N.T. Wright, I think, says this in one of his books, doesn't he? That, that one of the lenses with which you can read Romans is the fidelity of God, the faithfulness of God, the faithful mercy of God, which Paul has known in a very intimate way in his own life. Exactly. And as you as you quite rightly say, I mean, if God has shown us mercy, who are we then to refuse mercy to others? Right. And, and then you see in Romans 2, then, uh, you know, and do you think you're any better than people who do these things? Because you do these things and you presume mercy for yourself, but yeah. you don't presume mercy for, for the other. Right. Do you think that you're going to be shown mercy and they're not? Yeah. You know, and then he goes on to this beautiful exposition of the fidelity and the love and, uh, and the mercy of God, even in spite of Israel's own infidelity. God has always been faithful exactly. uh, and always will be faithful. So thank you very much for... Oh, actually, uh, maybe one last question. Sure. Is there anything else that you think we should know about Galatians? <laughs> um, that's a great question. I mean, there's so much in it um, about uh, the cross. I think I just w would want really to re-emphasise where I started with, that what Galatians is about is not... St. Paul's arguments with whoever it may be. Mm -hmm. I don't think the letter to the Galatians is there for us to do this mirror reading, try to read between the lines and figure out what was really going on in the early church. I think the letter to the Galatians is there to tell us that Christ crucified is the supreme revelation of the love of God and that every Christian must have a great devotion to Christ crucified and always be asking themselves, if I do this thing, whatever it might be, am I by doing it honouring the cross of Christ or dishonouring it? Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, hopefully uh, in the future, we'll be able to have Father Richard back on with us. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll, maybe if any of you have any particular questions about scripture, maybe I'll be able to compile them all into a list and then grill him again. Thank you very much for listening. God bless.